Welcome to the Value Investor Charter Podcast. This is a podcast that helps you grow your wealth and become financially independent. My name is Becco, and I have today a very special guest, Rich Howie. Welcome to the podcast. Becco, thanks so much for having me. This is, uh, this is fun. Excited to uh, talk spinoffs. Yeah, it's great. Um, I have been a big fan uh, of the spinoff strategy uh, ever since I wrote, uh, read about Joel Greenblatt. Um, it's, 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 it's a really... And I personally was able to benefit from that strategy personally. And what you do is super interesting. Um, so actually, before we do that, let me do a quick disclaimer. So everybody want, everybody knows, listening to the podcast, we are not financial advisors. We don't know your situation. We don't know your tax situations. We don't know your financial situation. Definitely go talk to your financial advisor for any, any investment advice. This is not, uh, this is not financial advice. Okay. Back to the back to the podcast. So, for those listeners that do not know who you are, could you give us a quick introduction? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, uh, so I uh, I live in outside of Boston, Massachusetts, um, and I am focused on investing in spinoffs, but also just special situations generally. I've always been. I've always been more interested in areas of the market that maybe aren't as efficient. So generally, I'm not investing in large cap stocks, which a lot of people are looking at. A lot of really smart people are looking at in terms of my background. So I was always interested in the market. So my parents were both in the market. My dad was on the stock. He was a portfolio manager. My, my mom was on the, the bond side. She was a bond analyst. And so I was always interested in the market. And so really took advantage of being able to ask them a lot of questions and, and learn a lot from them. But I, you know, was interested in high school and college and the investment clubs and, and whatnot. I ended up starting my career at Eaton Vance, which is a mutual fund company in Boston. And I did equity research there and covered a, a few different sectors, completed the CFA program. And that was a great place to work. That place has since been acquired by Morgan Stanley. And then I think it was 2013 or 2014, I switched and uh, moved over to City Private Bank, where I focused more on private equity research. And I was there for about five years, but I always had an entrepreneurial itch and I was always interested in spinoffs and special situations. And so while I was at City, I started StockSpinoffInvesting.com, which was just an anonymous blog to cover spinoffs and, and research ideas that I thought were interesting. And then I eventually decided to try to make it a, a full-time thing. So I, I ended up quitting my job in 2018 and launched Stock Spinoff Investing Premium Newsletter. And I've been, I've been you know, focused on that ever since. And, uh, and yeah, so that's, that's a little bit of background. We can kind of dive into whatever's uh, most interesting. Yeah, this is great. So for, again, for those of you who don't know, uh, there is this great website, stockspinoffinvesting.com. I personally looked at it several times. I'm also a fan of the newsletter. Rich basically puts together this great set of resources for special situations, but most specifically stock spinoffs. And we'll get into what that is for those of you who don't know what stock spinoff is, but it provides, um, and I see on the website, you have uh, some case studies here. Sock uh, spinoff recommendations have outperformed the market by a large margin. So here I'm reading the, um, reading the graph here. Stocks spinoff recommendations above 18%. And you know the historical average of S&P 500, it's about you know, 6 8%, somewhere around there. So stock spinoff provides 
you know, really interesting opportunity for investors. So why don't we dig into what it is uh, yeah. before, before we get into more of the, the details. So tell us about the strategy, stock spinoff strategy. Yeah, definitely. So uh, the, the basic idea, um, why I focus on this niche is because generally, as you've mentioned, stock spinoffs generally outperform the market. Not all of them outperform the market. In certain years, they won't outperform the market. And in certain years, they will. But it's an interesting area of the market, which a lot of individual investors like you and I and also institutional you know, small cap hedge funds are interested in because it's a source, it's a potential source of, of, of alpha. And the, the main reason I would say what I find most interesting is when a large cap company is, means a, a company with a market cap of call it 20 or $30 billion or larger is spinning off a subsidiary that's very small. And so the, the cool thing about spinoffs is that say you own a hundred shares of a large cap company and that company is deciding that it's going to spin off a small division, and we can get into actual real, real examples to, to make it uh, more realistic. But you know, for every hundred shares that you own of this large cap company, maybe you're going to re receive five or ten shares of this new small cap company. And for most people, that's kind of like a rounding error. You know, you get this new company in your account that you've never really heard of. You didn't make an active decision to to buy that company, and so the most the easiest thing to do is just to sell those new shares that somehow show up in your account. And even if you were to look up these new this, these new shares that show up in your account on Yahoo Finance or something like that, there's going to be no information out there. So it's it's a it's hard to understand what exactly you own, and so the easiest thing to do is just to hit sell. And so a lot of individual investors and institutional investors, if you're managing a large cap fund and you get a small cap spinoff, by mandate, you're not allowed to own it. So you have to sell that spinoff. And so what it results in oftentimes is forced indiscriminate selling pressure. And so my whole strategy is you do the work ahead of time. Not all spinoffs are attractive, but if you do the work ahead of time and all the filings are, are pretty easy to find if you know where to look, you can do your own work and determine if you think this is a stock that you think is worth owning. And then hopefully what happens, and this doesn't always happen, but hopefully there, there is this, this indiscriminate selling pressure and you're able to buy the stock, which you think is quite attractive from people that are selling indiscriminately. So it's kind of like the perfect setup. It doesn't always work like that, but that's kind of what I'm looking for. That's, that's kind of my ideal setup. Perfect. So let me just recap for people. So it, it, it's basically the, the forced selling that occurs post the spin provides an opportunity. It, it, it creates this downward pressure on the price movement of that, the, the stock that is spun off, that it provides an opportunity for value investors who are looking to buy companies for cheap can actually get in there. And I think the point that you raise is interesting. It obviously doesn't work out all the time. But it, it's sort of like a, it's, it's almost like a playbook because you know, these spinoffs gets announced, what, two, three years in advance. Is that right? Yep. Yep. So sometimes, you, you know, sometimes at least six months in advance, I would say, but oftentimes two to three years in advance. Right. So it gives you ample time to do your own research and figure out if the, the thing that is being spun off actually contains a lot of value, then it, it, it sort of, 
it, it sort of can be a good opportunity to buy when the stock, you know, price gets depreciated because of the forced selling that happens. And, and, and tell me, Rich, the forced selling that happens, part of the, I, I, think, I think you alluded to it just briefly, the institutional, inve institutional investors that own the big cap, Yep. And they get a little bit of, you know, the, the chump change of, right. of a spin. They are forced to sell because, because of the charter, because of the mandate. Maybe dig into that a little bit more if you can. Yeah. So this is, the, I think the most interesting thing, but like, um, I'll give you an, I'll give you a really good example. So there's a company, uh, called Prudential PLC, which I think trades in London but it's basically an insurance company with, a, I think, a big wealth management division. Everybody likes the stock because I think they have exposure to growing asset base and growing clients in Asia. And so the thesis and Dan Loeb from Third Point recommended, and, and, I, and then the company agreed, to spin off their U.S.-based annuity business annuities, kind of the backwater of finance. Nobody's really too excited about it, about annuities. Uh, and then, um, and so what happened was this large cap Prudential PLC, which is different from the US company, spun off this small cap company called Jackson Financial to British shareholders. So British, the majority of people are British or European that own Prudential PLC. They were given they didn't ask for them shares of this new company called Jackson Financial, which not only was it focused on annuities, which is the backwater of finance, but it also was a U.S. based company. So investors that are primarily focused on 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 British companies have no interest in owning a, a U.S. based company, never mind a small cap company. So a lot of times an ETF or an index fund or a mutual fund is focused on a certain market cap of stocks. Like you can buy a large cap, a mutual fund, or you can buy um, a mid cap. And so a lot of the natural owners of, of Prudential were not natural owners of, of Jackson Financial. And, you know, a lot of times these mutual funds have specific mandates. Like you have to maybe 95% of your portfolio has to be invested in large caps. You know, you can own the occasional small cap, but the majority of your portfolio cannot be in small caps. And so due to mandates for from their shareholders, a lot of times these large cap portfolio managers are, are really forced to sell. And then other times there will be, as everybody knows, a lot of the ownership in the market right now is, is through passive funds like S&P 500 index funds and things like that. And so in other examples, uh, the parent company might be a member of the S&P 500 and the, the spinoff will not be a, a member of the S&P 500. And so those index funds that have received shares of the spinoff are forced to sell those shares because they're not allowed per their mandate to own a, a small cap. I, I will say that we already, we emphasize this doesn't work every time, but Sometimes you see industry, the, the key is you need two factors. You need the sell-off, the spin-off, the selling pressure, number one, and you want a business that you actually want to own. So in the case of Jackson Financial, I had done a work ahead of time. They file what's called a Form 10 information statement, which is similar to like an S1 for a company that's going public through an IPO, where it basically says, hey, here's our revenue, here's our earnings, 
Here's how fast we've grown. Here's the dividend we think we can pay. And so it allows you to say, hey, is this a decent business? Even though everybody thought that the annuity business isn't a great business, generated a lot of free cash flow, they were gonna pay a big dividend. And so I said, hey, this looks like a, not only do I think there's gonna be indiscriminate selling pressure, but it also looks like a business that I would want to own. Sometimes there's uh, parent companies will spin off basically kind of what people call garbage barges, where it's a, a crappy company in secular decline with really high debt. And it's a company that I don't want to own no matter the price. So you can't, you can't buy them. Um, you can't, can't buy every spinoff. I mean, you probably would do fine if you did that, took an index fund approach to it, but I prefer to be a little bit more specific and more discerning and try to own the names that I actually think are, are good businesses at, 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 at really cheap uh, prices that are really driven by that forced selling pressure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the, the, the sort of baked in, uh, for selling, it's just, it's just kind of a perfect opportunity for people that are, you know, actually willing to do the work upfront to figure out the valuation. And then it just creates a nice, nice opportunity again going to press preface this all the time. Like every, every strategy doesn't work all the time, but it, it does present a good opportunity for sure. Can you tell, can you tell the audience a little bit about the, um, a little bit about the management when, when the spin actually happens? Because to me, when Joel Greenblatt talked about it in his book, to me, that was one of the most telltale signs of where the value is going to be actually accrued because people that are running the ships. They know where the value is going to be accrued. They know which is a trash business and which is not. They're voting with their feet. So if, you know, for example, if, uh, if a CEO of the company, the parent company decides that he actually, or she wants to become the captain of the smaller ship, then it might, it might tell you something about the, 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 the value that might be unlocked in the smaller ship. So tell, tell, uh, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's a really good point. So I think Greenblatt says that, you know, I forget what his top three things are, but basically incentives for him, I think are the most important thing when looking at spinoffs. And I think Charlie Munger, you know, has a similar outlook on how important incentives are. Basically, you follow the incentives and you you follow, you know, what's going to happen or you have really good insight into, into, like you said, where the value actually is. And so, yeah, one thing that I like to look at is the management of the spinoff and where, where it, where it comes from. Oftentimes, as you, as you said, or not oftentimes, but sometimes the spinoff, the, the management team of the, uh, of a big subsidiary will choose to go with the smaller division. And that's interesting because usually management it's more prestigious to be at a bigger company that has bigger revenue and maybe is a member of the S&P 500. And so if you see a situation where the management team is going to the, to the spinoff, it is, is sometimes a really interesting signal. Again, it doesn't work every time. I've definitely invested in spinoffs where the parent company went and it looked like a good setup and it didn't work out. So ultimately the success of the spinoff is going to depend on how the business does. And that's, it isn't crazy. And that's, that's really intuitive to say, but like any company, generally the stock will do as well as the business does. And so, but sometimes it's a really good sign if the, if the management team of the spinoff goes, uh, of the parent company goes to the spinoff. 
The other thing that's interesting to look at is Greenblatt always says to look for the amount of shares that are being reserved for executive compensation. And so say there's 10 million shares outstanding and you read through the Form 10 information statement that there are an additional 2 million shares that are available to be issued to the management team. That's a pretty good incentive. That's like 20% of shares, an additional 20% of shares that can be issued to the management team to incentivize them to create value. And oh, by the way, it's really more interesting if those shares, the strike price of those options are going to be struck when there's indiscriminate selling pressure. So that's another thing uh, to, to look for. Um, I, I would say most often, most companies do are fair, most spinoffs, whether or not they're good, opportun good opportunities or not, are fairly generous with their, with their management team. But it is something that I, that I like to look for. And then another thing that Peter Lynch, so Peter Lynch was also a big fan of spinoffs. And one of the things that he wrote about in his book is look for insider buying. So if you have a, a spinoff, a recent spinoff with insider buying, again, it's the management team. They're probably getting a bunch of shares for free. They're also getting a salary from the company. But what if they're taking their hard-earned money and using that to buy shares in the open market? That's a really good in indicator that there might be some potential um, value there. So I would totally agree with you that incentives are incredibly important to look at. Sometimes you have to read between the lines. So there was a company, microcap spinoff called Liberated Syndication. And if you look through the the information statement which shared how many shares the management team owned you could see that the management team owned zero shares but what i thought would happen and this is what ended up happening was there was no investor relations effort the company was incredibly coy with investors about sharing how good the business was doing they Basically, it was an investing, it was a, a podcast hosting business with, that was just printing cash flow and growing like crazy, trading like three or four times earnings. And my thought and, and was that management was probably going to grant themselves a bunch of shares. And the reason why they weren't promoting the story yet was because they wanted the price to stay low. Um, and so that ended up playing out exactly as, as I had expected. So sometimes you got to read between the lines. It's kind of like being a, you know, a, a, an investigator, you, you got to just like look, look for clues and try to read into the incentives of the management team. But yeah, I think incentives are probably the most important factor uh, to consider when probably looking at, at, the, at any stock, but really uh, definitely spinoffs. Yeah, I, I, I love I love that aspect of it. it it's sort of um, the management sort of playing this game a little bit. I think there's so much. Uh, I think there's so much alpha there because I looked at what I looked at one of the the spinoffs. Uh, we we talked about it before we hit record La Quinta um, and the spinoff Core Point. And one of the things that I this is it's like four or five years ago, but if my memory serves serves me okay, the I th I remember that there was some concerted effort. At least the sense that I got was that there was some concerted effort from the part of the management. To kind of sandbag the numbers a little bit, totally. Um, and I, I think um, I think that's just an interesting point to look at because as it as it, as that ties into one one person said to me one time um, when I was kind of learning about this stuff, 
10K and all these filings, you, you take them at face value if you want. But another lens to look at is they are in some ways a marketing material. So like really pay attention to in between the lines, like you said, I think that's to me that, 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 um, that's so important to do, uh, as good investors. So, uh, yeah, just to, um, so an, another, just really interesting example, just that speaks to this, it speaks to everything that you just said is basically there was a recent spinoff called fortitude gold. And I forget the name of the company that it spun out of, but it was exactly that what you just described where the management team came from the parent company. So, and they came from a much larger parent company, not only that, but they, the initial trading was like, was definitely OTC and it was on a very, it was like gray, gray listing OTC. And there was no reason for that to happen other than they wanted to discourage investors from, from buying the stock so that they could buy. Now they, you'll, you'll ask them the question, why, you know, why did you do this? And they'll have a different answer for you, which will sound good. But the only logical reason why they were sandbagging numbers. Oh yeah. The, the other interesting thing is that you, um, they didn't in there, um, in, I think they filed a form 10 information statement, but they really didn't point to how profitable the business had become. You had to read the 10 K of the parent company and then look and find the discontinued operations to figure out how much this company had actually had actually earned. If you looked at the historical numbers, it looked, it looked like a mess. And the only reason to do that would be to be able to get more shares at a, at a discount. So yeah, it's, it's super important. And a lot of times these management teams are playing games where they're trying to sandbag numbers so that they can get lower, lower prices on their options or give themselves a chance to buy more shares. And it's all legal, right? They can say, Hey, we put it all out there in the form, in the form 10 and then the, in the 10 K and in the 10 Q. And the other thing is it's not that complicated. I think maybe some investors will think, Oh my gosh, you have to be a crazy good investor or analyst to figure out this stuff. It's actually not, you gotta, when you're looking at spinoffs, you just gotta look for obvious, obvious things. You don't have to, you know, try to get, um, you know, try to try to find some nuanced, crazy view. It, it should hit you over the head that this looks like a really good setup. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. I, um, <clears throat> the, the, the management piece I think is, is, is so, so interesting. I, when I was analyzing core point, we actually did it in open. So it was like open for public and we announced it and then people joined and actually in the audience, there was some guy that actually worked at La Quinta and he was like telling me about, oh yeah, this, and this oh, wow. and, and, and there was another kind of experienced banker in the audience. And he said, basically, look, you go to the bank and they'll tell you, this is a recipe. You got option number one, we can sandbag the numbers, this and this and this way. Number two, this, this, this. And so they, they will present you with option a, on a silver right. platter, just pick and choose whatever you want. And then, so they have it all sort of figured out. It's just, you know, it's, it's, um, perhaps in some ways, maybe cynical. I don't, I don't, you know, depending on how you, how you want to kind of view that, but it's, um, it exists. I mean, this is what yeah. people do. So what, one question before we get into the actual names, because I, I'd love to get into some, some names that you're actually looking at now. One question that I have for you is the matter of timing and it's sort of like, 
maybe perhaps bad to 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 say this, but you know, because it's like timing is always so difficult to to really nail. But what do you think about when we did the back testing of all of the kind of the stock force selling that happens after the the spin? It looked like somewhere around six months to a year was when it sort of peaked the the sort of the global minima. Mm -hmm. Do you have some ideas around that? It's obviously different yeah. for different businesses, but any any general rule that you have around when the peak actually is? Yes, yes. So, uh, so there's many different ways to play spinoffs. So. The name that we're going to talk about in a little bit um, is as IC Inc, which which I own and and I like a lot and I'm recommending, and it's basically a spinoff machine. So they've spun off, I think five or six businesses over time. They incubate the businesses and, and then they spin them out. It's a some of the part story, and some of the part story can be deceiving because sometimes you never get the value, but in the case of IC, you get the value. So in the case of this name. You know, I run a stock spinoff investing newsletter, but um, I'm an, I'm recommending and I own this name because I think they're going to be, I know they're going to be spinning off these businesses over time. There's a ton of value and we're going to get that value. So in this case, I'm, I'm waiting, I'm buying, I'm buying the stock before the spinoff, right? But in the case of my, my playbook, it's a great way to describe it. And that's how I think about it too, where the, it's the indiscriminate selling playbook. And I probably get two or three of these a year, maybe if I'm lucky, where it's a good business and it's going to be sold indiscriminately and we get a really good opportunity to buy it. Um, let's see, um, uh, Contour Brands was an example of this and then Jackson Financial is the most recent example. What I typically look for is I look for at least, basically, uh, you want at least 50% of shares outstanding to have traded. So generally I've, I've looked at past situations where there was indiscriminate selling. And what I typically, what I found was usually the stock bottomed after 40 to 60% of shares had traded. And that also corresponded to about seven or eight trading days. Hmm. So typically, and the way that you can find this out is you can, the form 10 information statement will tell you how many shares outstanding the company has. And then you can go to Yahoo Finance and type in the ticker and you can find the, sh the shares traded uh, per day. And so I just add them up. And so basically, generally, I'm not looking if there's indiscriminate selling pressure, you don't want to get a you, you, you want to you can't time the bottom perfectly, but you want to get in towards the end of that. And so generally, I'm looking for at least 50 percent of shares outstanding to have traded. And that generally corresponds to waiting at least a week, you know, usually seven or eight trading days. That, that's, that's a great insight. Yeah, that's a great insight. Awesome. Let's, uh, let's move over to the actual names. You dropped a few uh, during the podcast, IAC, and then this one, Unit Corporation, before we talked about it. But let's, let's go one by one. So what excites you about IAC specifically? Uh, we'll start there. Yeah, definitely. So I see is a name that is a conglomerate. So oftentimes conglomerates are good areas for potential spinoffs because there's a lot of inherent value, but usually a conglomerate will trade it as a, at a discount to its, its some of the parts uh, valuation. 
And so the interesting thing about, about IEC, and it's actually IEC was written about, um, Barry Diller was, was written about in Joel Greenblatt's book, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, which I would recommend as my favorite book of all time, uh, if you're interested in learning more about special situations and spinoffs. But Barry Diller is still the chairman of IEC uh, Inc. And a big reason why I like the stock is related to his involvement. He's uh, a very good capital allocator. He, he's very good about knowing when to, when to buy stocks, uh, when, to, when to sell them. And he has a very good track record of unlocking value. So he, uh, I think, you know, I don't know what the exact numbers are right now, but over time, IEC has compounded at something like maybe, you know, 14 or 15 percent looking back over the past 20 years, you know, beating the S&P 500. And if you look at the stock of IEC, it doesn't look, especially right now, it doesn't look that attractive. But what you don't see with IEC is the assets that they've uh, that they've spun off. So uh, TripAdvisor, um, Expedia, uh, uh, um, Vimeo, um, let's think what, what other what other names have been uh, spun out match.com. A lot of other names have spun been spun out of IAC because that's really their playbook. What they do is they either they can build companies from scratch, they can buy minority stakes in companies, or they can uh, buy majority stakes of, of businesses, help them grow, and then eventually eventually spin them out. And so their playbook is is basically this. We know their playbook. They build businesses, they buy businesses, they buy majority stakes, they buy minority stakes, they help those businesses grow, and then eventually they set those those businesses free. The most recent businesses that have been spun off uh, was Vimeo. In Vimeo, if you look at the stock chart, it looks like an absolute disaster. But I think the interesting thing about IAC is that it basically built this business from scratch and then spun it off at a 15 times revenue multiple, right? Joey Levin, who's the CEO, was like, listen, the public markets last year are paying crazy multiples for, for these SaaS type businesses. We're gonna take advantage of that. So you as a shareholder, they said, we're not gonna make a decision whether or not it's good to, to sell um, Vimeo or not, but we're gonna spin that out and you can make whatever decision you want. So they're very good at recognizing value where there's opportunity, where there's not, and then just spinning out those assets when those assets are ready to be, um, to stand on their own. And so, and then IEC, I, I think has also really been a, a, a company that value investors have loved for a long time. But interestingly, it's, it's, it's out of favor now, which is just interesting to me because I, you know, investors seem to always be really enchanted with Joey Levin, the CEO, and with Barry Diller, the chairman, and their ability to create value over time. But the sentiment on Twitter has gotten a little bit better, but it's, it's still way, way negative, way more negative than I've ever seen it for this name. And the story of IC right now is a sum of the parts story. And the thesis is the stock, I think, very conservatively, is probably worth 85 bucks a share. I think this morning it's trading at about $55 uh, per share. And so the thesis is that we eventually, uh, all these assets that are very valuable and attractive are going to get spun off uh, to shareholders. And 
why do I have confidence that that's going to happen? Because that's happened because that's just in their DNA. That's just, um, that's just what they've, we've done. They've spun off, um, the uh, lending tree, um, Vimeo, Match Group, Expedia, TripAdvisors. There's just been a, a bunch of examples of them, of them doing that, of them monetizing their holdings. So, um, I know I spoke for a little bit, I can pause or I can get into, you know, exactly what they own and, and, you know, how I think it's value, you know, whatever would be most helpful. Sure. Let's, uh, let's get into, let's get it. It sounds like the, there's a theme here, TripAdvisor, Vimeo, Match.com, Lending Group. It sounds like it's a lot of, um, kind of tech adjacent or tech names. Yep. So tell me about their overarching thesis, and then let's get into some of the actual names underneath that umbrella. Yeah. So that's, that's a great, um, yeah, that's a great point. And I would say tech adjacent names, but also businesses focused on two-sided marketplaces. I think that's their primary focus. And like, like match is a perfect example of that. You know, TripAdvisor is a, is a good example of that. Um, let's see. And then, um, the other, the other, and then Turo. So Turo is basically the Airbnb, but for cars and they're going to be, they own 25, 27% of that. They have warrants to buy more. That's a beautiful two-sided marketplace business. It's like Airbnb, but if you want to rent out your car, they're the far and away market leader. So I'm very excited for that. Not only is it a fast growth business, and I know fast growth businesses have kind of come back down to earth, but the cool thing is that it's really profitable. So they 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 print earnings and they 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 grow really quickly, but they still are able to generate free cash flow and earnings. So I think that business is really good, and it's also an example of a, of a market marketplace business. Uh, so very good point there. And then they also own a majority stake, about eighty five percent of Angie Home Services. And this is the this is the one area where they've missed. So this is a marketplace business. If you search, I need a plumber. Odds are that you're going to get a um, an advertisement from you know Angie Home Services or another subsidiary that Angie Home Services owns to help match you with a plumber in your area. This business I've never been particularly excited about just because it's such a complicated story. They're trying to basically help you find an electrician, a, a, plum, a plumber, a carpenter, somebody to mow your lawn, somebody to rake your leaves. And it, it's just, there's a lot of moving pieces here. When you look at a business like Turo versus Angie, Turo is simple. It's like you have somebody who wants to rent cars and somebody who wants to rent you those cars. And Turo's the middleman in, bet in between those two sides of the marketplace. And you, you're not going to be able to find somebody to, to rent a car in Florida if you're going to Florida unless you use somebody like Turo. If I want to find a plumber, I can touch my neighbor and be like, hey, hey, you know, I have a, I have a clogged drain. Who do you recommend, right? So I think it's just a much more complicated story. And that's the one area where IEC has, has missed a little bit. But having said that, I actually think Angie is pretty cheap right now. It's trading like nine times. It's growing like crazy still. It's trading. They've made some mistakes. They've invested in growth, overspent. But if you look at their normalized kind of run rate free cash flow, they're only trading at like nine or 10 times annualized free cash flow looking at pre-pandemic levels. So it looks like a very... Uh, low cost call option, I guess. So basically just to run through the math, IC owns over 400 million shares of Angie. That's worth, uh, let's see, let's pull up my, my sum of the parts model here. 
Uh, that that's worth about 1.1 billion dollars right now. IC also has about 1.6 billion dollars of cash. Um, IC also owns Turo, which is the car rental Airbnb, but for cars business, which, which I valued about half a half a billion dollars. They own a business called care.com, which if you're a parent, you might be familiar with to, to get help with, with babysitting and other child care. They've, they acquired that business, took it private, and it's grown, I think about revenue's grown about 70% since they've acquired that. I'm still valuing that at their acquisition costs, which was half a billion dollars. They have a business called Vivian Health, same theme. It's a business that helps healthcare companies hire healthcare workers. Marketplace business growing incredibly quickly. That's valued at about $300 million. They own about 75% of that. And they also, this is kind of different. They own uh, MGM. This is a large cap business, which is primarily a casino business, but it's investing heavily into the digital betting world. And there's some hidden asset value there. And Angie thinks that they, they first started buying the stock in the 15s. I think MGM is close to over $40 right now. So that's been a very valuable investment for, for them. It's a minority investment. They only own about 15% of shares outstanding, but it's it's almost worth $3 billion right now. Then they have some debt, $2 billion of debt. They also have their Dotdash Meredith business, which uh, the Meredith business was a recent acquisition where uh, IAC basically bought the digital assets from People Magazine and IC has a core competency of improving web assets. Uh, you know, People's Magazine is not a very good, th th their core competency is not really running and optimizing web views and search engine optimization and things like that. And so IC really has a good uh, business model and a good approach to really improving the performance of those assets. They also merge that business with, Dot Dash, which is their 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 web business, they own sites like Investopedia, which if you go and look up, you know what's enterprise value, what's market cap, you can find all sorts of information on on that in a way that's not obtrusive and you don't have a tons of ads and it performs really well. So there's a ton of value here, and I know I've moved really really quickly here, but the the thing that I like about this is that there's just a ton of ways to win. If you add all add all this up. Uh, it's worth, you know, easily probably $85 a share. The stock trades right now at 55 bucks. Usually the bear case will be, oh, it's a conglomerate. So it should trade at a conglomerate discount. And it, it will. I see always will trade probably at a conglomerate discount. But the difference here, the key difference is that you have really good capital allocators running the business and that you know, eventually we are going to get, we're going to get access to those assets. They're going to get monetized or they're going to get spun off over the next, you know, one to two years. So that's that's kind of the thesis in a nutshell, but I know I, I move pretty quickly. So happy to answer any questions that you have. No, the, the, that's uh, that's a great list. <clears throat> and thanks for running running through them. The, obviously they're great, they have track record of nurturing these businesses, making them more capital efficient, blah, 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 and then spinning them out and capturing some value. That catalyst moment, the moment at which they actually capture that value, you know, sending Vimeo into the public market, the actual mechanism of it, it sounds like some of these are, you know, publicly traded. They have some minority or majority stake in the company. What is that? If 
you know, taking private company and then sending it out to the public market, that's one way. Spin, another way. What is the value capture mechanism for some of these businesses that are just, you know, already public? What, what does that look like? Yeah, so that's a great, uh, great question. So with Match, so Match, I believe they acquired Match and then grew it like crazy. And then they IPO 20% of the business in, I think, 2015. And so they owned 80% of the business, roughly, rough numbers, through the pandemic, basically through 2022. And then they decided that, hey, Match is a huge company, generates huge revenue, huge growth potential, massive market it's ready to stand on our own. So we are going to spin off the remaining 80% stake that we own of, of Match into to our IAC shareholders. And we're basically going to set Match free. Angie, they own about 85% of, but Angie's really stubbed its toe. It's it's changed strategies a bunch. Actually, Joey Levin, who's the CEO of IAC, has now stepped in as IAC or Angie's uh, CEO to kind of try to turn the ship around. But they don't think that Angie's uh, can stand on its own two feet. It probably could stand on its own two feet, but they think that that Angie can still uh, is is still uh, should be nurtured within the IAC umbrella. A company like let's think a company like um, MGM that's very different. So so IAC IAC typically just buys small companies, uh, minority or majority stakes makes them grow and then spins them off to shareholders. But with MGM, it's a big company. Like, I don't know what the market cap is, but it's a very large uh, company. Um, but I think the thesis there is that uh, IEC thinks that there's a lot of embedded value, especially with the new massive, uh, with betting being legalized, sports betting being legalized in the US and BetMGM is a big brand in that market. And that's currently generating losses for MGM. But it's so on a consolidated basis, it makes MGM look look expensive. But if you, it's actually a really really valuable asset, and so that is the that is the uh, that's the bet there, and it's very it's very different. But it's it's kind of like you're you're basically kind of giving your money to Joey Levin and IC and saying, hey, allocate it as you see fit. They are going to make some mistakes, like they've made some mistakes with Angie, but more often than not, they're going to create value in the best way that they can. And there's no plan right now for MGM to, or for IAC to spin off MGM. But I would think that once MGM gets to a valuation that, that IAC thinks is fair or maybe expensive, I would bet that IAC just spins off its stake in MGM to shareholders. They're very tax efficient. So if they were to just sell shares in the open market, they would have to pay a lot of taxes but they do everything that they can to avoid paying taxes and just shift shifting it to you. They would probably spin it off in tax-free transaction, which would avoid taxes altogether and allow you as the owner of IC to make shares of what you uh, make a decision of what you want to do with your MGM shares. So it kind of varies. Sometimes they'll sell the asset outright, but more often than not, they'll just spin it off uh, or merge it and spin it off into another public company. That makes sense. Awesome, awesome rundown of uh, IAC. And Rich, you have you have all of this detail on your website. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Yep. Yeah. So definitely go check that out if you guys are interested in learning more about IAC. Let's quickly run through the special situation that we want to talk about. UNTC, that's a, that's a ticker symbol, uh, unit corporation. 
Yeah, so when we're doing our pre-prep here, you mentioned that a lot of your audience is based in the South and has an interest in oil and gas names. And I, I personally think that we're in a period that's set up extremely well for, for, for oil and gas. You know, typically it's not smart to buy cyclical companies like oil and gas names at very cheap valuations because typically, typically, typically you want to buy companies when oil is, is you want to buy oil and gas names when oil is at negative $40 and they're, 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 they're not generating any revenue or any profitability. But I think what's different this time is that there's so much focus from investors on ESG concerns and decarbonizing the world that they've kind of forgot that, you know, for the foreseeable future, we're going to need oil and gas to power the world economies. And we're going to be using oil and gas for a lot longer. And to create more oil and gas, you need to invest to drill new wells. And if you look at just CapEx over the past 10 years, Bernstein has a great chart on Twitter. Send me a, a DM on Twitter and, I'll, uh, and I'll, I'll send it to you. But it just shows that there's been no, typically when prices rise, you see a massive spike in CapEx, meaning there's a, there's a supply signal. There's a signal from the market. Hey, we need more investment in oil and gas. And so CapEx spikes so that there's more oil and gas to go around and then the price inevitably falls. But what what's happened here is even though oil and gas prices are relatively high, CapEx has stayed very low. There's been no increase in CapEx because in, uh, oil and gas companies get, they've been berated by their shareholders. Hey, don't just spend money to drill wells, return that cash to us, pay us big dividends, buy back your own stock. And so I think that's a setup for continued positive performance for oil and gas names. And one name that I like a lot that I own and I'm recommending is a company called Unit Corp. Uh, and it's basically went bankrupt during the pandemic, but because it had too much debt, but it's basically a diversified energy oil and gas name. It is not a spinoff. So I, I'm, I'm looking to, I invest in all the ideas that I recommend. And so I'm, it doesn't have to be a spinoff for me to recommend it. I just want to find the most attractive names and, and Unicorp is definitely a top three high conviction idea for me. And, um, but it is a special situation because it came out of bankruptcy. It's still trading over the counter. No index funds own it. Nobody's really heard of it. I mean, if you, if you search for dollar sign UNTC on Twitter, there's some really good write-ups, which will, which can get you up to speed, but, uh, Nobody really, you know, no big fund managers own it. It only has like a 500 million, 500 million market cap, or maybe even, even lower than that. And it's a really under the radar name and it's trading over the counter. It's a post bankruptcy name where a lot of the debt holders that got the equity in exchange for their debt now own stock. They're not a natural shareholder base for stocks. So they're probably going to be, be looking to move on over time. But I think that has ha helped keep the valuation on Unicorp very low. The high level thesis is that this is a diversified energy company that has an oil and gas drilling operation, which has been profitable. It has a, a drilling rig operation. So it has these very extensive, very difficult to manufacture drilling rigs, which are in incredibly high demand right now that are being rented out at $35,000 per day. And these things are just printing free cash flow. And then it has a midstream business, which gathers and stores and transports oil and gas. 
And the thesis at a high level is that the stock is just dirt cheap. So despite uneconomic hedges, so coming out of bankruptcy, the debtors made the company put on very conservative hedges to ensure that the company would stay profitable even if oil went back to negative $400 or negative $40 a barrel. And so over the past couple of years, the company has printed free cash flow despite the fact that it's had these negative economic hedges. So the good news is that the majority of production this year is not hedged. And so free cash flow is going to be a lot higher. It's gonna explode higher in 2023 than it was in 2022. But if you just look at how much free cash flow the company generated this past year, it generated, I think on an annualized basis, they haven't reported year-end uh, numbers, but I think they're on track to generate about $130 million of free cash flow. And the stock is trading, I don't know what the market cap is, but it's under $500 million. So it's trading, you know, right around maybe four, probably under four times free cash flow. And they also have, I think, about $80 million of cash. So their enterprise, they have no debt, I think $80 million of cash. So their enterprise value is even lower than their market cap. So it's trading at about three times on a enterprise value divided by free cash flow level. And free cash flow is going to, is going to grow next year. Then you have high insider ownership. You have a, 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 a company called Prescott Capital Management, who I think owns... They own the debt, it got converted into equity. Best trade ever because they've, I don't think they've sold any shares. They're on mm -hmm. the board and they're incentivized to do what's in the best interest of the shareholders because they are a shareholder. So who knows, you know, some assets could be sold and monetized. The other nice thing is this, this company is just returning cash to shareholders. So since they've gone public again, they bought back over 20% of shares outstanding. So that's in two years. And then they just paid a $10 special dividend and they announced they're going to be paying a $2.50 dividend per quarter going forward. So right now that works out to a 20% yield, 20% yield of cash that they're paying out. They did say that it, they're going to take this quarterly dividend on a case-by-case -case basis. So if they need to cut the dividend, they will. But for the foreseeable future, they're paying out $2.50 per quarter. That works out to a 20% yield which is, is, is just a little crazy. The thing that I love about it is that you have the downside protection, right? They have net cash on the balance sheet. They have no debt. They have no debt. They do have some production hedge, but the majority is not. And then you have this backdrop of no capex in the oil, oil and gas market. So there should be some nice, nice, um, cyclical, you know, tailwinds, uh, you know, we might go into recession, who knows, but even if we do go into recession and it's, it's short, it's probably going to be, you know, short lived. The world is going to continue to need oil and gas for the foreseeable future. And so I, I really like, like this name, um, despite the fact that it's been a really good performer, you know, it's, it's, it's up a ton and I'm, I'm a little bit late to this name, but I, I do, um, continue to have a lot of conviction in this name, not a spinoff, but it definitely would qualify. I would say as a special situation. Amazing. That's pretty incredible. Um, I have never heard the same and I'm going to go and definitely take a look. What is, um, just one last question on this company. Of course. What is the, do you have any capital inflow catalyst, um, on the horizon? Yeah. So, uh, the short answer is, is maybe. So the company, a lot of investors have asked about a potential uplisting. So this company's traded over the counter, no 
Vanguard funds, no Vanguard funds own this, no ETFs own this. So theoretically, you could uplist this company to NYSE or something else, put it on the radar of more investors and get capital flows. You know, I don't know what those capital flows would be, but theoretically there would be some buying pressure on the stock. I've talked to, or I didn't even ask management about this, but they, they did mention that it's on their horizon, mm. that it's not imminent, but it's probably something that they will think about doing. The thing is when you do uplist, you got to pay NYSE, I don't know what it is, but you got to pay them a million or 2 million bucks a year. There's more cost to maybe directors and officers insurance and things like that. And so there is a cost, but I know the management is evaluating whether that makes sense, uh, sense to them. So I would say that is the biggest capital flow potential, uh, potential catalyst, but I don't know, I think probably it happens at some point, but I just don't know timing wise. Okay. Awesome. This was an excellent rundown. And again, if you guys are interested in this name, definitely check out Rich, uh, his uh, newsletter. Um, go check it out, stockspinoffinvesting.com. All right, this has been an excellent podcast. Um, where can people find you? Yeah, so I'd say, like you said, stockspinoffinvesting.com. So check out check out my site. I do have a spinoff calendar too that you can just check out the upcoming spinoffs and how the old spinoffs have performed. And then also I'm on Twitter. So uh, I think I'm at, you can search for Twitter, Rich Howe, and I should pop up. Or uh, uh, my actual my actual handle is at stock spinoffs with two S's. Stock spinoffs was taken, so I had to go with stock spinoffs with two S's. Nice. Awesome. Well, this has been great. Definitely go check it out. Um, we will be in touch over Twitter. Awesome. Michael, right. Thank you so much for, for having me on, man. This was fun. Yeah. I'd uh, love to have you again. All right. Anytime. Thanks, guys.